Good morning. How are you, West Bowles? Good. Don't we live in a beautiful place? Man, I try not to take for granted just driving down the road and you see those mountains and the sun and the blue sky. Boy, praise God. Yes, our lines have fallen in pleasant places just about where we live. Isn't that something? Turn in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 20. We're in the 20s, and it, like the book actually ends in the 20s. Woohoo! Right, George? Yes, another miracle. All right. <laughs> Acts chapter 20, where Paul's third missionary journey is about to come to a close. We'll read him into Jerusalem this morning. You may recall from a couple of weeks ago the riot in Ephesus. Remember that? It has just ended. And Paul now makes his way back to Jerusalem for the last time. As you'll see on the map in a minute, as it unfolds on the screen, you'll see once that black line gets past Ephesus, look what it does. My goodness, Paul certainly takes a long, winding road back to Jerusalem, doesn't he? Even going in the opposite direction for a while. He, he does this to encourage the churches and to tell them goodbye. Many scholars, in fact, refer to Paul's speech that we'll read in a minute to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. They refer to it as Paul's last will and testament to the early church. It's where Paul says in so many words, I'm leaving, and so here's what's on my heart to leave with you. Your Bibles are open to Acts 20. I'll leave that map up on the screen so you can follow a bit. Paul as he makes his way. Acts 20, beginning with verse 1. When the uproar had ended, that's that Ephesian riot, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because the Jews made a plot against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Paul apparently stopped there to celebrate Passover in Philippi. And five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now, those six verses, those six verses take care of that whole western swing of squiggly black lines west of Ephesus. Do you see it? That's all the detail that we've got in the Bible. We've got some comments from Paul in his letter to the Romans about what he might have said there. We've got some pieces we can infer from Paul's letters. But for whatever reason, God, Luke, no biblical author, gives us detail of what happened through that swing. That's it. So now they're in Troas. In Troas on the way back to Jerusalem. Verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting, 
And seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. Some of you have experienced that in church Sunday mornings. Yes, if you admit it. I thought about we'll do some experiential learning of this text here and I'll keep going till midnight. We'll see. I wonder how long you would last. No, I won't try it. When he was sound asleep... When he was sound asleep, Eutychus, that is, sitting in the window, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went, I tell my students, don't fall asleep in class. You might end up dead. And I don't know that I'll be able to do what Paul does. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. And then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Now, I'll pause there a minute to give just a couple of comments on the Eutychus story. I almost decided to do an entire sermon on it, but this will just be a mini-me, a sermonette. So if you'll allow me that. Notice how the people in the story of Eutychus are celebrating what? What are they doing in that room? Celebrating what? What's verse 7 say? I know I don't have it on the street. They came together to break bread. What's breaking bread in the New Testament? Yeah, they're celebrating communion or the Lord's Supper when He's raised from the dead. Interesting, isn't that? What a context for this miracle. We so often just focus on the miracle, and that's awesome. That's a good focus. But look at the careful context that Luke bothers to tell us of the miracle. Right in the middle of God's people celebrating and remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made so that all may have life in His name, somebody dies and is given back his life. I mean, isn't that awesome? How fitting that of the ten accounts in the Bible where people are raised from the dead, this is the last one that we have recorded. It's fitting, isn't it, that the last biblically recorded resurrection comes in the context of remembering Jesus' atoning death on the cross. Don't you just love that? One fun P.S., and then we'll need to move on. Do you know what the Greek name Eutychus means? Does anybody know? Yeah, it's not in our culture, really, or upbringing to put meaning to names, but Eutychus is the Greek phrase for lucky one. (laughs) You suppose that's just a coincidence? I don't think, boy, I don't know about you, but I see in, in things like that, what, what a delightful sense of humor that God has in bringing this miracle together, complete with a boy named Lucky. I mean, I, I hope you see things like this in the Bible, you know, as a big grin or, or a wink from our amazing God. I mean, can you just hear God's chuckle? See the twinkle in his eye as he made sure in his sovereignty that the kid who sat in the window, fell asleep, falls to his death, only to be raised to life again, is named Lucky One. I bet the angels who watched it live didn't miss it. Must have cracked him up. Lucky is the one who receives life during the Lord's Supper. (laughs) What a lesson on grace. Yes, in connection with Jesus' death. Okay, back to Paul's journey, verse 13. 
We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assas, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. We don't know why, but Paul decided to walk, quite lengthy walk, from Troas to Assos. Maybe to gather himself what he knew what was coming in Jerusalem. Who knows? But he walks that distance by foot. Fourteen. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. That's one of those little islands on the west of Turkey. The day after that, we crossed over to Samos, another little island. These boats would hide behind these islands to help against the winds and currents. And on the following day, arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, here's that last will and testament of Paul to the early church, some have called it. Paul said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. And therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. 
Then they accompanied him to the ship. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit... They urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemaeus, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. You remember Philip from Acts 8, Philip and the eunuch, Ethiopian eunuch, same Philip. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt, and we'll hand them over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. These are the very words of God. Amen? Now, Here's what I'd like to do with this rather long passage. I'd like to focus on one thing in particular that I think Luke is intentionally trying to do. In my opinion, by, by how Luke tells the story and the details he includes, I think he's intentionally trying to draw a comparison here between Jesus and Paul. In order to show that that Paul is just like Jesus. We'll see what you think. I, if Luke is emphasizing this, then my thought is maybe we should as well. So here's what we'll do. I'm going to give you a list of things, one by one on the screen, things that we read in the Bible. And then you tell me if we're talking about Jesus or we're talking about Paul. Okay? You'll see it's not a very hard test. It's, I'll list something. Your job is to decide... Is this Jesus or is this Paul? You got it? Should be fun, right? Are you looking forward to it? First one. He chose 12 disciples, Jesus or Paul. You're right. Jesus chose 12 disciples. But what about Paul? Well, through his life, he may have had more. But on this third journey, look what Luke bothers to tell us about Paul. Remember Acts 19, verse 7? Luke just throws this in there. That as soon as Paul got to Ephesus, Paul found about 12 disciples there. Hmm. I wonder if that's just a coincidence or is Luke 
telling us this detail to have us start thinking about even Jesus. How about this one? He spent about three years with these disciples, Jesus or Paul. It's both again. Many of you already know that the best guess is Jesus spent about three years with his disciples. And in Acts 20, verse 31, Paul tells us he spent three years in Ephesus. And those disciples that he found there keep popping up near Paul during his ministry, watching him teach, watching him heal, watching him live his Christian life and witness. Go figure. Is Luke telling us Paul is just like Jesus? Or how about this one? He was instrumental in his disciples receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, Jesus or Paul. Well, Jesus gave the gift directly to his disciples at Pentecost. And through Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, Paul, too, is able to lay hands on those 12 disciples in Ephesus. And they, too, receive the Holy Spirit. Remember? Is Luke telling us Paul is just like Jesus? How about this one? Even his clothes had the power to heal, Jesus or Paul. We remember the bleeding woman who touched the corner or the wing of Jesus' coat, and she was healed, right? And then look what Luke does. Throws that verse in there. He bothers to tell us that the handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched Paul, Paul's handkerchief and aprons healed people. Probably just a coincidence. Or is Luke telling us that Look at Paul. He's just like Jesus. How about this one? Here's a big one. His own people reject him and set in motion events leading to his death. Jesus or Paul? The instances of stiff opposition from some Jews to both Jesus and Paul, they're almost too numerous to list. And while we haven't yet had the story of Paul's death, let me tell you that Paul's arrest, trials, and death very striking, striking resemblance to Jesus. Is Luke telling us Paul is just like Jesus? How about this one? He predicts that his final trip to Jerusalem will cost him his life. Jesus or Paul? Jesus tells his disciples in Luke 18 that we are going to Jerusalem, and when we get there, I will be mocked, spit on, flogged, and killed, Jesus tells his disciples. And Luke, the same author of that gospel, goes out of his way to give us Paul's words to the Ephesian elders. I know prison and hardships are facing me there in Jerusalem. I consider my life worth nothing to me. I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. And Paul tells the people in Caesarea, he's ready to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. Is Luke telling us that Paul, just like Jesus, is well aware of the life-threatening danger facing him in Jerusalem? How about this one? He perseveres in his mission and call despite life-threatening trouble in Jerusalem, Jesus or Paul. You get the idea by now. It's both, isn't it? In his gospel, Luke builds and builds toward the climax of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem, toward the cross, resurrection, and ascension. And despite certain death waiting for him there, and despite him knowing it, Luke shows us Jesus never wavering. Luke gives us Jesus rebuking Peter even, who tries to tell Jesus, would you just stop saying things like we're going to die? Jesus nevertheless 
Even though his friends and those closest to him try to talk him out of it, he willingly, intentionally goes to die because he knows it's God's will. And in like fashion, look at what Luke does with Paul. Paul, who despite people trying to talk him out of it, Paul doesn't blink. He continues on the path he is called to take regardless of the cost. Just like Jesus. On the way to Jerusalem for the last time, he raises someone from the dead. This is one of them where it got to be so many that I started to think, okay, somebody's doing this on purpose. (laughs) Jesus or Paul? Jesus raises Lazarus on his way to Jerusalem to die, remember? Paul raises Eutychus on his final journey to Jerusalem, which will ultimately lead to his death. Hmm. Is Luke drawing a comparison, telling us Paul is just like Jesus? One more. He leaves his disciples when he believes they're ready to continue the mission without him physically present. Jesus or Paul? Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives. His disciples are there too, and they ask him, Is it now, Lord? Is it now? Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus encourages them. He says, by the power of the Holy Spirit that you will receive, be my witnesses. And then he says, bye. And up he goes and leaves them. They're ready to do this now on their own. With the help of the Holy Spirit, of course, but without Jesus physically present at least, doing it for them. Fast forward to Paul at Ephesus. While the people are rioting there, remember, Paul tries to go into that theater and address the crowd. Remember the story? And why doesn't Paul get into that theater to take care of this? It's because those disciples that Paul found in Ephesus would not let him go in. I wonder... Did Paul react by saying to himself, oh, they're ready to do this without me? Because right after that, Paul encourages them and says, bye, never to see them again, just like Jesus. Now, these similarities are they're scary close, aren't they? And what to make of all that? I'd love to hear your ideas, but but here's one suggestion at least. I suggest that now the question for us is no longer, wow, is it Jesus or Paul? But the question is, is it us? You say, how so? Well, are we making disciples? Not necessarily 12 exactly. 12 in the Bible symbolizes a full or complete number, a just right number. So, Whatever the full or complete or just right number of disciples you are to make is, 12 or otherwise, the question is, given Jesus' command to go and make disciples, are we making disciples as Jesus commanded and Paul did? You know, a great teacher once said that that each person at all times should have at least one person discipling them and at least one person they are discipling. I like that. I mean, it may be a son or a daughter you're discipling. It may be a brother or sister. It may be a stranger. Do you have anyone that you are currently discipling? Jesus and Paul did. Next one. How about 
the time that Jesus and Paul took? Does our discipling take time? Or said it in another way, is our discipling intentionally relational? Is it more than just passing on words and information? More than just Bible knowledge? More than just doctrine? Now hear me, those things are all incredibly important, necessary, and needed. But alone, they're just words. There's more. The more is a life living those words passionately for God in concert with others in community. And in that way, passed on. Passed on through shared life experiences where we learn from each other just by being with each other in those circumstances of life of what it means to be like Jesus. Now, it certainly includes what we know. But it's so much more than that. Discipleship, discipleship is not an eight-week Bible study on Wednesday nights. It's a relationship. See, I wonder if I passed out a paper and pencil and said, on this piece of paper, write down every relationship you can think of. You know, marriage is a relationship. Friendship is a relationship. Some of you might have put teacher-student. Coaching is a relationship. I think I said parenting or brothers and sisters are... Discipleship is every bit a relationship. Do we take the time in our busy individualistic culture for this biblical kind of relational discipling? How about the Holy Spirit? Are we instrumental in helping believers experience to the full the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Do we help or hinder that experience when we make disciples? Do those who look up to us, who look up to you, do they sense a, a spirit of cynicism when it comes to the Holy Spirit's power? Or do they sense a, a humble appreciation of the very real, supernatural, wild, exciting power of God indwelling the fellowship of believers available but perhaps not always experienced, sometimes at least, because we doubt it somehow in this age of science and reason. How about healing? Are Christians synonymous with healing? Are you? And I'm not only talking about miraculous healing, but included in that, are you, are we, are we simply a place of healing and rest and hope and comfort and encouragement to others? Do we provide shade for people in the hot deserts of their lives? And then there's persecution. Are our lives marked with persecution, even and in some ways, especially from unexpected places, even within the body of Christ? Say, even within the body of Christ? Did you catch that from Paul? Acts 20, verse 30, he says to those Ephesian elders, even from your own number, Paul warns, people will come after you and those with you. Right there in the Bible. If we're never persecuted, never questioned, never opposed, if we never face challenges connected with our passion to share and live the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
we might need to ask the question of whether we're truly being salt or light. Christianity is not about smooth sailing. As Frank said during his Sunday school, Christianity is not a walk through the tulips. That meant something to me, Frank, being the Dutch boy from Holland where we sing tiptoe through the tulips. I won't now. Thank you. My friends, one huge, huge mark of authentic Christian life and witness is whether we experience persecution and hardship. And that persecution includes rejection by those who should know better, like some Jews of Jesus and Paul's day. The Apostle John, in his Gospel, tells us up front in chapter 1, verse 11, that Jesus, quote, came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And why would we expect any different? Especially when Jesus himself said, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will, not they might, but they will persecute you also. This heretical idea out there, afoot even in the church even, that if we're doing what God wants us to do, we won't be persecuted or face hardship, at least not from within our own ranks. See, some call this the health and wealth prosperity gospel. I call it Oscar Mayer theology, health and wealth baloney. This idea that if we're doing what God wants us to do, we won't be persecuted is not biblical, my friends. Rather, Jesus, and Paul for that matter too, tells us straight up that if we're doing God's will, we will be persecuted. So don't be shocked when it happens. Or even dismayed. Be encouraged, as James says. See, the fact that if we're in God's will, if we're on the path He wants us on, we will be persecuted. That is directly opposite 180 degrees. Not 179, not 181. 180 degrees opposite from health and wealth prosperity teaching. Now to be sure, Jesus quickly adds in John that, quote, if they obeyed my teaching, Jesus said, they will obey yours also. So there is both success and failure as we do God's will. It's not all persecution all the time from everybody, praise God. But there is indeed both. And so it remains, it seems to me, that if we're only always experiencing success and smooth sailing and tipping through the tulips and never experiencing failure or prosecution ever, it seems to follow, doesn't it, that we may need to step back and assess our own saltiness and light. Are we really doing God's will? Or have we compromised with comfort and culture and individual if we're never oppressed? My friends, do we truly count the cost of following Jesus? Jesus knew Jerusalem meant death. Paul knew his path there included prison and hardship. And in my opinion, there are hints that Paul knew Jerusalem ultimately meant death for him too. We read some of them. Do we fully understand and do we accept 
that our path as followers of Jesus is also one of hardship, self-sacrifice, self-denial for others, and maybe even to the point of our own death for the cause of Christ. Do we understand and accept that? And if we know this, do we truly embrace it? Do we persevere despite knowing this? Do we lean into that certainty of persecution and hardship, even if we know it will cost us, even maybe our lives? Or do we, in the face of certain conflict or hardship, do we alter course, abandon ship? In the face of opposition and hardship, do you catch yourself, as I do sometimes, rationalizing, pulling back, or changing course because we conclude, well, God must be speaking because if there's pain involved here, God is certainly not in that. There's Oscar Mayer again. That's a very curious rationalization given that God warns us persecution will happen when we're on the right path. The economy is really struggling right now, and us along with it. Yes? Might even get an amen. You say, Pastor, tell us something we don't know. $4 gas, escalating debt payments, soaring prices across the board. You know. And in the face of that hardship, reports that I researched across the country the past week all say the same thing. Charitable giving is way, way down even among Christians and churches and Christian ministries. Hmm. How have you, how will you, how have we, how will we respond to this tough financial time? I know, it's awfully tempting. I'm tempted too. Times get tough financially. Well, where are we going to start cutting the budget? We'll cut God right out of it. That clears up some room. Isn't that tempting? And yet God asks for our best and our first fruits, including our money. Especially when times are tough, because that's when others need it most. And that, my friends, is when our witness stands out even louder. Wow! Look at those silly Christians. Even giving money, maybe even giving more when it's far more prudent to save and to wait this thing out and like, uh uh-oh, I've got... The witness is more powerful, my friends, when we give in times of hardship. Anybody can give from plenty. In the current tough time, I invite all of you, all of us, me included, hey, let's take a real hard and honest look at ways we can make ends meet other than by cutting God from our budgets. Charitable giving. Will we instead keep trusting and joyfully giving back to God from all He has given us? I mean, one reason Paul's going to Jerusalem is so he can deliver the collection gathered from the churches to the church in Jerusalem. Not a main reason, but it's really important to him. And he perseveres in bringing that money to the Jerusalem church despite guaranteed hardship facing him in bringing it. Will we do the same? Did you catch Paul's motivation for continuing on in his mission and call? And Why do this all? Continuing to be obedient, even in the face of certain persecution and threat to his own life. There's a buzzsaw, and it's turning in Jerusalem, and Paul's heading straight for it. What motivates him to do that? 
Is he some sort of nudnik? Paul says he keeps going no matter what. Did you catch it? If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task, as you recall, is to be a witness for Jesus for the sake of others. And we've seen before how Paul's love and compassion for people, Jew and Greek alike, motivate him to keep going no matter what. He knows what's at stake for people. It just kills them when people don't know the, know the Lord. It just kills them that there's so many who are suffer, suffering and hurting. Did you see what he t- hear what he told the Ephesian elders? Make sure you take care of the weak. It's one of the last things he says. The love he has for others that motivates him even into that buzzsaw in Jerusalem. And so for the needs of the many out there, Paul willingly sacrifices his own needs, including even his life. As I often do, I I try to find for you, for the kids especially, a, a video clip that helps. When I go video clip, I'm trying at least to capture some of the emotion at least in the passage before us, which sometimes words can't do as well as what multimedia does. So I think I found a clip that captures Paul's sacrificial spirit for others here in Acts 20. It it comes from, of all things, Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan. I know, I, I almost couldn't believe it either. Yeah, some of you, your Trekkies are out there going, oh, I forgot my glasses. Okay, it's the scene. Let me set it up a bit. Someone from the first uh, service said, didn't really know what's going on. So let me, let me set it up a bit. Spock, remember Spock? Right? Logical. Spock, despite certain death in entering this radioactive chamber on the USS Enterprise, Despite knowing it will kill him, he goes in there to save the ship. And it costs him his life. Take a look once and see what you think. Well done, Scotty. Jim, I think you better get down here. Bones? Better. Hurry. Savick, take the con. already. It's too late.
ship out of danger. Yes. Don't grieve, Admiral. Just logical. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. I thought for sure that, you know, the writers of that movie had like quoted some philosopher or something. Do you know that that's a Spock original? As far as I could tell on the net, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. I thought, wow. Is that our Christ-like, Paul-like attitude in our life and ministries? Indeed, the even more Christian motto might be something like the needs of any one, not just the many, but even the needs of any single soul or any poor, weak, trodden person outweigh my own individual needs. The emotion you might have felt, or at least the Trekkies did at Spock's sacrifice, Kirk's pain at losing his longtime friend, I, I think that too comes close to what those Ephesian elders were feeling, say goodbye to Paul. This was more than we're just not going to see you again. It was not seeing him again because they knew, or at least strongly knew, the reason they wouldn't see him again is that his life was about to be given for the gospel, in my opinion. They knew his life was on the line here at least. And it truly tore him up because they loved Paul. Will you, will we put our lives on the line for others like Paul did, like Jesus did? Because the needs of others outweigh our own needs? Do we truly love others as ourselves? We don't have time for the last two, just very briefly. First, does life to others flow from our own death to self, just as literal life came to Lazarus and Eutychus? And finally, do 
Do we intentionally equip and trust others to continue the witness of Christ when they're ready? Are we about doing this as a community, as a team? Equipping the next generation, leaving a legacy of faith for those following behind? Jesus did. Paul did. Do we? In closing, I'll ask you to consider one thing this morning. Consider that Jesus Himself leaves the work for us to complete. And He does this because equipped with the Holy Spirit, He believes we're ready. Ready to relationally make disciples. Ready to be instruments of the Holy Spirit and healing. Ready to knowingly count the cost of certain persecution, but to persevere nonetheless, even at great cost to self. Ready to make disciples who will carry on the witness when we're long dead and gone. Jesus believes we're ready for this. Do you believe, Jesus, that you're ready? If not, well, He's Jesus and He should know. (laughs) And He believes in you. And if you do believe this, if you trust Jesus that you're ready, well then, come, let's go. Amen? That's a lot for one morning or message. I look forward for us continuing. Work out these things together with fear and trembling, but with confidence as well. I hope you guys look forward to it too. Next week. Paul is in Jerusalem. Ooh, I wonder what will happen there. I know, because I just read it, but if you haven't read it recently, you won't believe what happens there. Come back next week to find out, will you? I know I will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the amazing example of your son, who forsaking self gave even his life for others. And thank you also, Father, for the example of an imperfect man, the Apostle Paul, who, equipped with the Holy Spirit, accompanied at least in spirit by Jesus, who promised to always be with them. And with your help, God, even the imperfect Apostle Paul could carefully, with great effort, and great success, walk the steps that Jesus walked. Oh, Father, would you give us what you gave the Apostle Paul? Give us the humility, the courage that it takes to truly give ourselves, even our lives, for others, that they might know and experience you and your love in the name of Jesus Christ. Would you give us that, please, Father? We love you, and we ask all of this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, your Son, the Messiah, and all God's people said, Amen. Have a great week, West Bulls. We'll see you next week. God bless you.